This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Anthony Dragan. Dr. Dragan is the chairman of the Department of Radiation Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper University Hospital. He was previously a professor of radiation oncology at the University of Louisville School of Medicine from 2008 to 2017. Dr. Dragan has also conducted extensive research, culminating in over 40 publications. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I just wanted to start out um, really at the basic level um, to give our listeners a better understanding of what cancer is on the molecular level and then the process that most patients, I know it's different for for different parts of the body and different um, stages of cancer and whatnot, but what the, the process of diagnosis uh, entails. Yeah, I mean, uh, being in oncology, um, you know, we, we have these conversations with patients all the time. They're uh, frequently, um, you know, upset, they're scared. Um, they wonder about um, implications for their family members. Um, many uh, patients are very, very shocked by the diagnosis because they don't have any history of cancer in their family. And so, you know, this is um, something that we don't know a tremendous amount about on a global level. I mean, we have the well-known risk factors for some cancers, but frequently cancer is a sporadic occurrence and we don't know exactly why. It's probably part of the human condition um, and, you know, for instance, with breast cancer, as we start to see uh, people reach a certain age, it becomes fairly common. Um, breast cancers in women talk about, about one in seven or one in eight women will be affected by breast cancer and they tend to follow a bell curve that begins around the age of 50 and then tails off by the age of about 70 to 75. If you think about it for, you know, a hundred thousand years of, or more of human evolution up until just about a hundred years ago, the average life expectancy of a woman was relatively short and the most common cause of a health problem or, or death in women was the process of childbirth. So there's something about, for a lot of cancers, there's something about the fact that we've been able to, in the modern era with modern medicine, somewhat cheat mother nature, obstetric care becomes better, um, well care and healthy lifestyles become better. Our overall environment becomes better. The water is cleaner. The um, uh, shelter and you know uh, food supply is more reliable, and human beings start to survive longer and longer with an average life expectancy. And so, cancer or encountering a battle with cancer becomes more and more common. So, we don't know. You know, many people think it's something that they're exposed to during that period of time. But actually, I like to flip the conventional wisdom and on that and think that it's not that things in our environment that we're exposed to, that we ingest into our bodies, um, that we encounter uh, in our environment are actually uh, much better, much more sanitary, much more clean today than they were, say, 100 years ago, the air, uh, the water. And so it's more likely that there's something that, that is happening on the genetic level where our cells are making a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy on and on and on millions of times. It's quite remarkable the cancer or a mutation that in that photocopying process that leads to cancer isn't more common. Um, so you know, getting back to the molecular level, I think that uh, what we what we do know is that something happens. Some something happens with the fidelity of 
the genetic material in our cells and then some genes are switched on, some are switched off and you have a mute, a mutated cell. And, um, and that's where it starts. So beyond that though, um, for, for getting diagnosed does a person typically come through their general practitioner and then go on to a medical oncologist or radiation oncologist like yourself, or who, who's kind of like the first point of contact in the medical medical community typically? Yeah, it's interesting because there's basically two pathways for that. Again, in in the Western world, um, where we have a developed medical system, we have two pathways. For the developing world, there's just one pathway, and I'll get back to that. But for the developed world, we have cancers for which there are screening tests, meaning to catch a disease at a point where it's asymptomatic, meaning it's not apparent to the patient, it's not apparent to the doctor. And those cancers for women, it's breast cancer with mammography. For uh, men, there's prostate cancer with a blood test. For both men and women, there's uh, colorectal cancer where there's some screening tests with um, uh, checking for blood in the stool or um, having routine colonoscopies. Um, to a certain extent, lung cancer screening has become a little bit more common with, uh, patients who have a heavy smoking history. Um, those are the main tests where we have some sort of screening test where, um, a patient will be, will have an encounter with their primary care physician and get to a certain age where they're eligible for one of these screening tests. They have a screening test and lo and behold, it finds something that something then uh, necessitates a biopsy. That biopsy shows cancer, and there we are. And and that is a starting point that is uh, for the ultimate treatment of that cancer. That is uh, very very favorable because you're you as a patient then and as a physician are in the driver's seat. So you tend to have a lot of options uh, with your care. You are able to take kind of one step at a time. Um, throughout that process and make decision points as to, you know, when surgery versus chemotherapy versus radiation or a combination of those are appropriate. So that's one pathway. That's a pathway that's really the product of a lot of um, clinical trials, a lot of population-based uh, research that goes into figuring out effective screening tests that are going to um, in my description, be a good smoke alarm. When you have a smoke alarm in your house, um, the mark of a good smoke alarm is that it goes off every single time the house is on fire. Okay. And it doesn't go off when you just burn the toast. So the mark of a good screening test is that combination of sensitivity and specificity that results in a low risk to the patient that you're going to find something or put them through a course of anxiety or further testing that's ultimately going to show that they don't have cancer. You don't want that. But every time they do have cancer and it's there, then it's caught. And so I think that, you know, we've gone very, very far over the last few decades in finding that uh, right pitch or tune of those screening tests that I mentioned before. The other pathway, uh, which is um, the, the more worrisome one, is something's wrong. There's a symptom. Someone all of a sudden is becoming more and more short of breath. Someone has abdominal pain that is getting worse and worse. Um, someone notices uh, something um, like uh, a bleeding where there shouldn't be, or a woman who has gone through menopause and shouldn't really be going through menstrual cycles, notice that she's starting to bleed again. So there's something wrong, and then that's brought to medical attention. Sometimes that comes through a doctor's office visit, and that has to be worked up. And sometimes it's a symptom that progresses so quickly that the person ends up in the emergency room and ultimately in the hospital. Um, and then you're starting with 
a problem from cancer, from a tumor that's causing that symptom, and then trying to work backwards and find out where that is coming from. That is the pathway that most um, people in the developing world follow. And that is also the pathway that, frankly, uh, for types of um, cancers for which we don't have good screening tests, um, pancreatic cancer comes to mind. Um, brain tumors come to mind. You know, the story of somebody who uh, looks like they're having a stroke or they have a seizure and they go into the hospital thinking that perhaps this is a stroke, perhaps it's you know, um, something else going on, and then they do an MRI and find that the reason that they had the stroke-like symptoms or the seizure-like symptoms is because there's a brain tumor. So, um, so we're not there yet um, with many cancers in terms of being able to catch them uh, with a great deal of confidence uh, very early. Once a patient is diagnosed with cancer, a treatment plan is set up. Typically, this treatment plan entails an interdisciplinary approach with different types of doctors, such as cancer surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, etc. Could you talk about the role that you play in that treatment plan um, and, and the tools you have in your toolkit when it comes to radiation therapy? Sure. Um, what I like to do for um, patients who have... Uh, a new diagnosis of cancer is to think of it, um, you have these two um, buckets of treatment approaches, okay? In the one bucket, I call local therapy. That means treatment for the primary cancer where it is in the body and the immediately surrounding area, okay? And then the other bucket contains systemic therapy. That means treatment of the disease throughout the remainder of the body where the disease might spread. And so most cancers, when they're diagnosed, are going to have some sort of combination of local therapy and systemic therapy. And so in the local therapy bucket is surgery, obviously. Uh, it's a targeted um, therapy that either removes all or part of the tumor and samples some of the surrounding tissue to, to look at where it's spread. Um, in the case of cancers like colon cancer, you're removing a section of the colon that contains the cancer and frequently relieving some of the symptoms from that by uh, reattaching uh, the, the, the remainder of the colon together to have the or organ function again. Um, so surgery and what I do, radiation therapy, are really local treatments. Um, systemic treatments include chemotherapy being the most obvious one, but also things like hormonal therapy for breast cancers and prostate cancers, um, and then also uh, newer types of drugs and agents that circulate throughout the body like targeted therapy. There are some drugs that are targeted directly toward some tumor cells that are not necessarily considered chemotherapies, and then immunotherapy. It's drugs that um, stimulate the immune system or use the immune system, the body's own immune system, in a way to help target cancer cells. So generally speaking, when we look at somebody with a newly diagnosed cancer, we're working in a multidisciplinary uh, way to figure out the sequence of and the combination of those two buckets. Um, and sometimes you may have only one therapy from each bucket. For example, you may have a cancer that's treated with surgery and then chemotherapy alone, okay? Um, colon cancer comes to mind as a good example of that. And sometimes you are treating patients with surgery and radiation and hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. Some breast cancers come to mind. And then in some cases you're treating 
patients with just radiation therapy and chemotherapy, uh, cancers of the head and neck and cervix um, come to mind. So, but whatever it is, it's very, very likely that you're going to have some combination of one or more elements from each of those two buckets. And that's really, uh, and, and then how we sequence them is also a very complicated matter it has to do with, um, whether or not, uh, a tumor when we see it is, um, surgically resectable, meaning is, is it likely that a surgeon would be able to remove it, um, successfully and be able to remove the, the known tumor completely? Or, um, is it a situation where you might want to start with um, either radiation therapy or chemotherapy to shrink a tumor and then do a surgery afterwards. Um, so there's a lot of complexity to the matter. Um, there's a lot of tailoring that goes into it. We also take into account uh, an individual patient's age and their other medical problems that may complicate the matter a little bit. Um, but in general, what we're uh, trying to do is match the right amount of therapy for the type of tumor that we're dealing with, taking into account uh, the patient's medical problems, their wishes, their values, and what we believe they can or cannot tolerate. So it's a lot of cross um, pollination of uh, physicians and specialties that happens. Uh, you generally at a comprehensive cancer center are doing that in the setting of what's called a prospective tumor board, where a patient's uh, case, uh, once they have a diagnosis of cancer, is presented to a panel of uh, physicians who represent those different specialties. And then they uh, are basically working with each other in a conversation to decide on what the best approach is. And there's a lot of evidence-based medicine that plays into that. There's a lot of clinical trial data that we have for the most efficacious combination of, uh, of those therapies. But many, many times, you know, patients don't fit into a predetermined, uh, beautifully wrapped, sweet-smelling package uh, for us to fit them in. We have to uh, oftentimes work around other medical problems that they have and even social problems that they have, um, problems that they may have with support that they have at home for some of the complications that may occur, transportation uh, to and from many therapies, especially radiation therapy, which is a daily therapy that requires patients coming to the cancer center every day. Um, all those things uh, come into creating someone's treatment plan, and it's a, it's a very complicated and um, very challenging method that we use to uh, tailor the therapy to the individual patient. So with radiation therapy, can you talk more about um, how it's actually targeting the cancer? Um, and a, a follow-up question to that would be, I know you have a number of, of medical physicists on your staff. Can you talk about the role they play in treatment? Yeah, so um, radiation oncology is a somewhat idiosyncratic um, specialty in medicine. I, I joke, uh, when I used to uh, be involved with the training of residents in radiation oncology, they were uh, some of the best and brightest in their medical school class. And then I was telling them, okay, uh, pretty much forget everything that you learned in medical school, and now you're going to have to fill your fill your head with all of this um, data uh, and, um, and physics and, uh, and a science that we call radiobiology, which is how different tumors and different normal tissues respond to different levels of radiation. So, uh, but, uh, you know, it, we're very, very fortunate that radiation has been around for a very long time. And we go back to the late 1800s when William Conrad Rankin, who was a German scientist, discovered x-rays. 
And around the same time, Marie Curie, who was a Polish um, a scientist in living in France, uh, discovered radium, which is a naturally occurring radioactive source. These two discoveries happened very close to one another in the late 1800s. Um, Rankin actually won the first Nobel Prize in physics for his discovery, and Marie Curie won the second Nobel Prize in physics for hers. And right after those discoveries, radiation was employed and found to be very, very useful for a number of medical modalities, things that we don't use it for today. But if you think of the state of medicine as it was back in um, those times, we're, we're talking about the era really before pharmaceuticals. Um, surgery was used for many, many things. Um, leeches were still being used. We had some compounding herbs that were used. Um, you know, the poppy plant was used for uh, pain relief. You had uh, things like the digitalis plant that was used for certain heart conditions, but a very, very rudimentary understanding of, of the way those um, herbs worked, the mechanism of action. And here we had radiation, which seemed to be very useful for a number of different conditions. I mean, it was used to treat infections. It was used to treat some of the more common infections of the skin, like ringworm, um, but it was found very, very early on to be very ef effective in treating uh, cancer and tumors. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, it came later that we began to understand that it was actually dangerous. Um, and many um, of the early practitioners who were using radiation therapy, they actually um, developed uh, consequences from handling radiation uh, they, they developed cancers themselves. They developed other medical problems that were related to handling radiation because it wasn't fully understood. But that understanding increased over time. Then we get a, got into the atomic age in World War II and had a better understanding of it. And, and through uh, the production of nuclear energy and as byproducts of nuclear weapons uh, production, we actually found that there were more... Um, radioactive elements that were a little bit safer to use than radium, than some of the natural occurring uh, elements such as radium. Um, some of these were produced as byproducts of um, the war effort. And uh, as we got more of an understanding about those, we started to develop this science that we call radiobiology, where we start to look at the way radiation affects different types of tumors, the way it affects different types of tissues. There's different, there are some tissues in the human body that are very resistant to radiation, such as the bone or blood vessels. And then we have other tissue in the human body that's very sensitive to radiation that can be damaged very easily by radiation, like the kidneys and the lungs. And so uh, we start to really develop that understanding of uh, how radiation affects the human body and subsequently how it affects different tumor tissues um, over that period of time of the hundred years. And then we sort of level off between about the 1960s through the early 1990s. There was a sort of leveling off where we had a, a pretty good understanding of radiation uh, and radiobiology, a pretty good understanding of the physics behind it. Um, but delivery systems of radiation that were very, very crude by today's standards. Um, you know, we're doing things just like with any other technology, a very low computing ability back then, the ability to actually measure accurately the dose that you're giving in a particular volume of tissue, um, the evenness of that dose through the tissue, uh, very, very difficult to measure. Um, but then as we get into the late 1990s, there's kind of this explosion of tech that comes into medicine, just like it was kind of coming in on board with the internet, internet coming on board. Um, medical imaging becomes a lot more sophisticated. And we start to see uh, a real big renaissance in radiation medicine that's really rooted in 
our harnessing of technology. And so now, uh, and that, that really has progressed, I would say, in a logarithmic way, just the same way that, you know, your cell phones progress and computing power progresses. I think they call it Moore's Law, where technology incre- doubles every 18 months. Um, so as that technology renaissance goes on with radiation therapy, it being a very tech heavy specialty, um, so does the complexity of what we do, um, the reliance on technology of what we do, the kind of support staff we need to have behind us as physicians. Um, and you, you mentioned medical physicists, um, the machines that, that deliver radiation therapy, the bulk of radiation therapy nowadays, uh, are called linear accelerators. Um, they are extraordinarily uh, complicated pieces of technology, very, very expensive, um, very difficult to maintain. And the radiation safety that goes into delivering the right dose of radiation with every single treatment in a highly reliable way and targeting that uh, really takes a team of people working on it. So, you know, I may be the face of uh, the patient's experience in in her his or her radiation therapy course, but there's a whole team of people behind me that the patient doesn't really see, and those are people like medical physicists who help to keep the machines calibrated accurately and to help with the radiation planning. Uh, there's a whole field called dosimetry, which is um, sort of a um, an out an outcropping of medical physics, which is a type of occupation where they're working with physicians in the virtual world, in the computer world, to design specialized treatment plans uh, based on a patient's imaging with the physician uh, to choose different angles, different um, energies of radiation to maximize the dose to the target and minimize the dose to surrounding normal tissues. And then we have radiation therapists who are, are, um, there are, uh, our hands as you would, as you will, uh, to actually deliver the treatment on a day-to-day basis to position the patient, uh, appropriately and make sure that they're, um, in the exact same position for treatment every single day. So, it's it, it has really become um, from literally the doctor having a a needle that was made out of radium and probing it into a into a tumor into in the early 1900s or or a doctor sort of standing there with an a rudimentary X-ray machine and sort of pointing it over a, a cancer or a tumor and using a stopwatch. <laughs> um, in the you know uh, early 20th century to a um a, a room and a and a team of people that looks like something out of star wars going to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the emotional side of of cancer and the process of treating it i want to read a quick excerpt uh from your bio uh on your on the uh md anderson website and you say I hope my patients would say that I took my time with them, that I held their hand, that they felt emotionally so much better after visiting with me than before, and that I didn't make them wait. (laughs) Um, I feel like that's, if I were in a position where I needed treatment, uh, just reading that, I I definitely would want to follow up with you. But um, there's a certain, I I, I decided to read this because there's a certain depth to it. And um, can you just kind of Talk about the, I guess, the, the emotions associated with, with treating a cancer patient. Sure. Um, it's definitely, you, you have to use both sides of your brain. So um, I just talked about all of the science that goes behind uh, a complex specialty like this and the kind of um, very, very focused, disciplined um attention to detail that that one has to have in 
designing and implementing a plan of radiation. But when it comes right down to it, you know, people are people. And a human being is a human being. And the humanism that's involved in caring for patients with cancer um, is the most important part of it. Um, educating patients as to what to expect, empathizing with them to the degree that you can, um, trying to understand what the what their concerns are, what their barriers are to um, deciding on a certain course of treatment or to um, making it through a difficult course of treatment. Um, if you can't do that, then all of the scientific knowledge that you have and all of the expertise that you have to do or plan a course of treatment uh, won't matter. Um, getting patients to trust you and to buy into the kind of things you're going to be doing um, to them and uh, the explaining exactly how this is going to work, what to expect. Patients want to know what the side effects are going to be. Um, managing those expectations over time is the art of, of medicine. So you, you, you have the, the science and the art, and it really does um, require both. And, and to a large extent, it's the art that's more important. Um, there you know, it seems to me that the, especially in the days that we live in today, where so much emphasis is placed on technology in so many aspects of our lives, that um, the time that you take with somebody the amount of explanation that you can do in boiling down a lot of the information into digestible bites, being able to understand or have an intuition for the kind of language that a patient is going to be able to understand. Um, and I don't mean that with different, with a foreign language. I just mean in terms of being able to explain things in lay people's terms. Um, those skills are even more important uh, than the mastery, I would argue, uh, than the mastery of the, uh, of the data and the mastery of the techniques and the technology. Because if you can't do that, um, you are, um, you're not going to uh, be able to build that kind of trust to deliver the kind of care uh, that can be delivered. So um, I've always placed a lot of emphasis when I'm training young physicians or right now being uh, the uh, leader of a department uh, where um, other doctors are uh, part of that. I've always placed a, a, a big emphasis on uh, the focus on uh, patients as people and as human beings and uh, treating people the way that we would want to be treated ourselves or want our own family members to be treated. And most frequently that, that involves your time and your um, investment of emotion in their care. And there is a, uh, you know, a somewhat, when you're getting started out, in medicine, and this doesn't just go for um, cancer care, but in any medical specialty, uh, there's, I find with young physicians, especially today, there's a, a little bit of a hesitancy or a shyness or reluctance to um, let the patient into your heart and um, invest emotionally in your patients. And um, I think it's wrong. I think that for um, the overwhelming majority 
of time that medicine or that doctoring was a thing or an occupation or a vocation uh, for our history as human beings, uh, the largest part of that um, has always been um, the emotional uh, connections that you can make with patients and providing the kind of wisdom to guide them, uh, but the empathy uh, to see the world and see the expectations and live that to a certain extent through their experience. Um, so, you know, I, I happen to take care of a population. My, my practice is mainly made up of breast cancer patients. And um, with this particular population, it tends to hit women in the prime of their life. So they are, you know, very, very frequently have young children or children who they've raised who are going off to college. Um, many times they're in the phase of their life where they're becoming grandmothers for the first time. Um, and many times it's diagnosed, uh, you know, earlier when they, they haven't even had a chance uh, to, um, to have a family, to have a career. Um, and, you know, recognizing uh, the crisis that, that this is for that individual person and not taking it as any less and not taking anything that you do as a physician as routine and, um, and really living that experience to the extent that you can, I think is, um, is, a, is a gift. It's a gift that you give to the patient and it's a gift that you have uh, for your career, because um, it's the most satisfying part of what I do. I'm very, very, you know, blessed to be living in the era where we have the kind of technology that we do. But um, the most satisfying part of the job that I have is uh, sitting with a patient, laughing with them, um, sometimes crying with them. Um, but, you know, definitely experiencing their uh, journey with them through that process. And that's, that's what I get up for every day. Um, I don't necessarily know. And, and that's the thing. I mean, so much of my day is attempts to be structured um, with appointments and things like that. But it's the, I find it's the walking into the room and not knowing uh, what story is going to come out of that experience. And being a part of that story is really the most fulfilling aspect of this job. I think you said some really, really beautiful things there, honestly, especially about letting, letting the patient into your heart. Um, and, and, and how that's sort of an art. I think that's really, that really hits home with me. I wanted to ask you though, kind of on the other side of that, if you really invest in your patients and have the emotions, how do you kind of balance that out with, like a not getting really wrapped up in outcomes and b um like being able to check that at the door when you need to go home and be dad or a husband or and whatnot yeah i mean if you if you find the answer to that, please let me know <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i i I think it's um there is there there's a natural way that you develop that over time to try to compartmentalize things i mean you see. Um, in the, um, in the world of cancer, you see, you see, um, many victories and, uh, you, you experience some very devastating defeats. Um, and, and I would say that that's the case in many fields of medicine. I mean, whether, you know, you're, the operation goes well for a patient who's having a knee replacement or doesn't, or you see them you know, um, uh, you're able to treat their heart disease or your, or it's frustrating. It's, it's, um, it, it is something that is a, it, you can't really have these ironclad walls that exist. Right. Um, and, and to a certain extent, um, you know, why is that 
an expectation. You know, does does the attorney, the 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 trial lawyer who goes in to argue, you know, does a, a ton of preparation and going in to argue a very very difficult case where someone's life might be on the line uh, and either wins or loses. You know, does does he or she uh, not have that same um, you know issue? Does the uh, basketball star who you know has to go in and perform? on a, on a week to week basis and, and maybe make it to the playoffs and the championships and the pressure that's involved in that. Um, do they not have the same, uh, pressure to try to compartmentalize what they're doing there versus their life? I think there's a natural, uh, um, bleeding over that, that occurs. And, you know, sometimes you have really good days and sometimes you have, you know, days that are down. Um, the, you know, uh, realizing that that this is a um, always keeping in perspective that this is a long game that um, that you know this isn't going to be solved. Uh, Cancer is not going to be solved in my lifetime. I'm accepting that um, it's going to be a there are going to be aspects of cancer care that that are solved and pieces of that puzzle that are solved, which is so exciting to be a part of that. But but realizing that. Uh, we're not going to wave a magic wand and solve it. Um, and you know, when I when when I see a new patient, uh, whether that patient is at a stage where she can be cured of her disease, and I'm playing a part in that, or whether it's a situation where that person is terminal, and I'm going to be a part of that, um, you know understanding and setting those expectations and understanding what my role is in that person's life. I mean, that, that person does want me to be a good listener. They, they want me to be, to have empathy, but most of all, they really want me to be able to, to solve their problem. And, um, in some cases I can't take it completely away. I can't, um, you know, wipe the slate clean, but many times I can, I can focus on an aspect of that disease that's really causing them a problem or that's really dangerous to them. And I can take that off the table. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to have to deal with some other aspect of the disease at some point in time, but I can help them in that. There's a beginning, a middle and an end to that particular role that I play. Um, and the more you do that and the more patients that you see and, um, you know, uh, the more experience that you get, uh, the better able you are to, to balance that with your life. You know, fortunately, you know, you, you know, your life is evolving over this period of time too. So when you're a young physician, you may or may not, you know, have a significant other, you may or may not be married. And then, you know, you're starting out your practice and then maybe you're layering on your first child. Um, and, you know, and, and then you're, you're sort of, the two things are happening on the same track. On, on, on two different tracks, excuse me, but they're happening at the same time and they're both evolving over the same time. Um, you know, an interesting part of that is that I, you know, when I first got into radiation oncology, I, I thought I would be, I, I was really attracted. Our specialty, you treat both adults and pediatric patients when you're going through training. And I really found um, the pediatric care very um, rewarding. Um, and then I had my first child during my residency training, and I found that I could not emotionally, I couldn't handle that the same way anymore. And so my perspective changed. Um, and so I decided to focus a little bit more on adult medicine. And, you know, that to me was a, was a crossroads that I had to decide, okay, is this something that you still can do? Or is it, or is it, is it something that's going to be too, uh, taxing for you to have a family and have that. And in my, in my case, I, I found that it was so, so there are these kind of decision points that you make as you're evolving in your training and maturing in it, and then maturing in your career, um, as to how you can balance those things. So it's not something that, it, you know, you can be pres prescriptive about and say, okay, here's how you balance these two things. I think that you have to pay attention to both of them. You have to drive, you have to drive the car with both feet. Um, but you can find that balance, you can find that harmony. And, uh, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, I've <coughs> had, 
you know, patients, patients of mine who, who are friends or family members or colleagues who then that relationship with them changes. And now they're not just a colleague anymore. They're also a colleague and a, and a patient. Um, and how do you balance that? You know, and I've, I've gone to um, patients who I was very good friends with. I've gone to their funerals um, and, and mourn their loss. Um, so there's, you know, it's very, very difficult, especially the more advanced you get into your career to not have those interactions. And the only way you can do, do that is put a shell around yourself. And, um, it's not really possible to do that and to have a, a successful, rewarding career in my, in my opinion. I mean, because everybody thinks of, the the downsides the potential downsides to having those types of relationships and types of connections that go beyond just the doctor patient relationship um and everybody thinks well how would you handle it well you know my my contention is how do you handle the opposite how do you handle you know basically cocooning yourself and protecting yourself from those things um there's a there's a downside to that there's a loss to that um so i found over the course of my career that being able to experience that as part of life, um, as part of why, why we're here, um, has been uh, the way I've chosen to pursue the practice of the specialty, and uh, it's been very rewarding. That's very insightful. I think I think you're right. A lot of people try and warn a bit too much about you know that you need to kind of just protect yourself and shield yourself, and maybe sometimes you just kind of have to dive into to make things happen. I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder how wise it is to think that whatever career we choose, we can go about it in a mechanical way that insulates, that, that protects us from becoming emotionally involved in the experience. So, you know, does a, um, does a clergy, does a member of the clergy uh, is it possible for them to do the same thing? You know, if you're, if you're a, 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 a hockey superstar, um, are, are you able to just, you know, sort of mechanically be the best player, but not emotionally be involved in the wins and losses or the, the ups and downs of a game or a season? So, you know, human emotion is, is not something that doctors can, can check at the, at the door on their, uh, it's, it's unrealistic to expect that and, and not even preferable to, to want that. We, I don't, I don't think we'd want a world where we knew that our doctor, um, if we were coming in as a patient where we knew that our doctor was, uh, checking his or her emotions at the door or, or, or walling themselves off, selves off to a certain degree. I think patients understand that I'm not, I can't be their spouse. I can't be their mother. I can't be their, uh, father, I, you know, I, I can't be there for them in that regard, but I think that uh, they, they intuitively understand that. But I, but I really believe that patients want you to connect with them. They want you to be emotionally invested in them because they, they, they believe, uh, and I think rightly so, that, that that's tied with you doing a better job for them. You know, if you really care about them, you're going to go the extra mile. You're going to call them in the off hours when they have a question. You're going to I think that it's naturally natural for them to think that you're you're going to spend that extra time on their treatment plan to make everything that's just right. You know, I often have this uh, there's always this inevitable way that the conversation leads when I'm meeting with a new patient for the first time and, and we go through all the options and everything like that. And then they say, oh, you know, and that's all well and good. But if I was your mother or your sister, what would you tell me to do? And I and I often turn the tables on them and say. I don't hold some special recommendation in my back pocket that I only give to my family. And I say, if I, if you were my mother or my family member or my sister, um, I would give you these same options. And, you know, my mother or my cousin or my sister, uh, if they had those, um, the, the same situation that you had, they, each one of those people may make a different decision. Uh, but I would present the options the same to, to all of them. And so I'm, I, I'm automatically treating you the same way I would my family member. Um, so, so I, I think that our, um, perception as, phys as physicians, and I've seen this from young physicians that 
you know, as I've trained them over time is that um, conventional wisdom that we're supposed to do this and not that and go here and not there. Um, it's not, not necessarily what patients want. Uh, and many of many of the times, all those things are tied together from the patient's perspective. Um, you know, I often say, think about yourself. What would you want when you're, when you're sitting with a doctor in crisis? Um, you want them only thinking about, you know, how they're going to target your tumor or do you want them thinking, you know, about what's going on in your life and how you're going to handle this and how you, you know, what you're going to need. I heard you were a caddy back in the day. I, I didn't know if you had a funny story from that. Oh, caddy. <laughs> yeah, I think it was my first job where I made money. Um, was caddying. Uh, it was nice because it was all cash. I didn't even know what that meant at the time, you know, four, 14, 15 years old. Um, you know, I would say this, that I tended to see that there was an inverse relationship between the expense or the, the, the expensiveness of the, the golfers clubs and their, their ability. <laughs> I tended to see that over time. Um, and I found that, uh, for some people, you know, it, it's the art of, uh, managing expectations and trying to, um, you know, provide service to people. I, I, I often said that, uh, one of the best, um, things that prepared me for a life of medicine was actually waiting tables. Um, one of the early jobs that I had was, uh, you know, and, and caddying's not far off of that. You're, you know, you're basically, you're at the service of the, um, of the customer. And, um, you know, you do what they say without question and you don't argue with them. Um, and if there is a, if there's another way that there's, that they should go, you have to find a, you know, a, a tactful way of, uh, of letting them know that. And so, um, you know, uh, I, I do think that, um, people that I've seen, uh, who have the most, um, I'd say, uh, emotional quotient, the highest emotional quotient of the doctors that I've trained have spent some sort of time in the service industry where they've been, um, uh, they've encountered difficult circumstances that they have to manage with people's, um, demands or emotions or things like that. And the, the golf course, you'll find plenty of that. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I've got it at a course over here for eight years by my house. So I definitely know what you mean about the clubs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Anthony Dragan, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me on, John. I really appreciate the opportunity. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.